Good evening. It is currently 6.30 on a beautiful day in Washington, D.C. We were expected to have thunderstorms, but no. And uh, the Eurasia Center is joined by uh, Cole Davila and uh, Rishi Parikh. Uh, Noah will not be with us today. He has some other matters to attend to. But we have our research uh, intern Rishi with us uh, to talk about India again. So thank you for being with us. Uh, as always, I'm Casey Chambers, the host of the Eurasia Center Wantcast, and I'm joined by my new co-host, Cole. Everybody, good to see you all again. Hope you're all doing well. And last and certainly not uh, least, uh, we have uh, Rishi with us. Oh, hey guys. My name's Rishi. Uh, yeah, I'm a research intern at the Eurasia Center, so I'm excited to be here. And you, uh, you wrote a research paper on COVID-19 in India, correct? Yeah, so I wrote about the India, India's COVID crisis. It hit a lot of big headlines. And I basically wrote an article about what was happening, what the situation was in, uh, in India and also what led to this, um, this crisis that happened. And honestly, like I wrote about who's to blame. And basically what I summed up was that the blame goes all around on why this COVID crisis happened. All right, we can we can certainly get into that more. I guess uh, now is a, a pertinent time as ever to actually tell listeners that today's episode will be on uh, COVID-19, but specifically uh, COVID-19 in India, um, as India is currently the uh, largest COVID explosion in the world, right, Rishi? Yeah, yeah, it, uh, it absolutely is with cases consistently coming in and massive amount of death. It's a very tragic scene happening in India right now. Um, earlier uh, in April and May, we saw COVID cases spike at almost 400,000 a day and uh, have fallen back now to about 157,000 cases a day um, as of uh, yesterday. Um, but unfortunately deaths, uh, after a, a COVID spike do lag. So the, the height of the um, uh, recent case count was like 4,200 cases a day. And currently we are a little bit over 3,000 deaths a day still. So the uh, toll is severe on India and there's also potential undercount as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think all of this just shows that while things might be looking better, especially here in US, uh, in USA, you know, there's a lot of countries around the world that are still facing the brunt of this COVID crisis. And that's something that uh, we all have to keep in mind. And in a country with a less developed healthcare system as compared to the US. I was reading an article this morning that said that uh, the actual mortality count in India could be as much as five to 10 times uh, the official tally, uh, tally. What is the impact of having, uh, especially in rural areas, uh, a less a lesser developed system when dealing with a pandemic like this? Uh yeah, no, that's absolutely an important point to talk about. Uh, you know, New York Times had came out with this article about what the, how big India's true COVID toll could be. And their 
talking about millions and millions of infections and over millions of deaths. And, you know, especially in a place with massive amount of wealth inequality, we see stark uh, divisions between the urban areas and the rural areas. And a lot of these rural areas, they either don't have the resources, support, or education to deal with these crises. And uh, it's very hard in some cases to reach these areas to provide them all those resources. And, you know, the government in India needs to figure it out because people are going to continuously be dying. And, uh, you know, you can't have that. It's horrible. It's a horrible scene to look at. The pictures are bad and the reports are uh, tragic to read about. Yeah, it seems like it's almost a bit of a, a weird kind of double-edged sword with the rural population across the world, even, um, you know, they're, they're more isolated from other people. So they're not quite as exposed as much, but because they're so far away from the cities, they have less resources available when there is an outbreak. Um, so, you know, while a large portion of the world is urbanized, um, like you said, there's a lot of people that are rural, especially in places like India. Um, this is why I think you see stuff like in the U in the world, you have what 171 uh, million cases already, you know, approaching 4 million deaths. Um, that's not just city issues, which is easy to see. It's a lot harder to see the impact in rural communities just because, like you said, the, the rural communities don't have access to those things. You know, reporters aren't going to go out to these random places hours from the city. They're going to go to the local hospital. Um, so I think it's easy to forget about the rural communities too. Uh, yeah, that was, a, that was a great point. And it was uh, not too long ago they have wrote about how they were pulling bodies out of rivers in some of these rural areas. And it was basically, you know, this is part of the underreporting, you know, the missing bodies, the missing reports, those numbers that don't make the statistics. And some of these places, they didn't have any more room to either burn or bury the bodies. So they were tossing them in the river. And, you know, then they would just wash up on shore. And, you know, those numbers don't get counted and they're, they're out there. So who knows how many more infections or bodies are being, um, you know, people are dying from this COVID crisis. And a lot of this happens in those rural areas. So it is very sad to think about. An idea that strikes me is that it's not just the impact of the pandemic, which, uh, and, and the recent spike of cases, which obviously is important as well. But how do uh, distributive factors play into things like uh, shallow graves or bodies being thrown into the river? And how do uh, politics also play into it? Um, as in, like, as far as politics goes, you know, a lot of this is about for the, you know, we had talked about Modi's government before. A lot of this was about, you know, you know, the Modi government messed up. And I mean, it doesn't matter what side you're on. They just weren't prepared for this second wave. They had preemptively uh, declared victory. And now they're just trying to save face, you could say. And, uh, you know, they were holding election rallies. That's part of the politics of it. They were more worried about their self-interest. And they thought that they had been able to overcome this first wave and, now they're just trying to figure out how to, you know, put a Band-Aid on this horrible crisis. And, you know, the Indian government has been facing a lot of backlash. And, 
you know, and on top of that, they've been either underreporting. Uh, they've been there was reports coming out that they were uh, India ordered Twitter to block tweets that were criticizing how the Modi government uh, handled um, the pandemic, and you know, all of this, all of this, it, it doesn't help the situation. You know, you can't you can't mess something up and then not be held accountable for it. Yeah, I mean, with India, uh, my understanding of India obviously is not going to be uh, quite as extensive as maybe some other countries that I've uh, studied more in depth on. But my understanding with India is that there's uh, a religious aspect that may have played into the pandemic. Um, large crowds, people moving from place to place to worship, doing things of that nature, and then obviously their um, the sacredness of the I believe it's the Ganges. Um, you know, people crowding around the river or like you said throwing bodies in the river um could lead to potentially more infected could have uh driven the infection far more rapidly than had religious activities like that um not taken place and i also do wonder if the throwing the bodies in the river which um i'm not sure if it's due to religious uh, need or just uh, ease of this body disposal may actually cause more health issues later on down the road as bodies rot into the river and potentially pollute uh, water supply causing you know outbreaks of let's say cholera or stuff like that later on down the road uh yeah exactly uh as far as the bodies being thrown in the river as far as i know it doesn't really have a religious impact but it was oh, okay just, it was just about easy access easier way uh to dispose of the bodies because again a lot of these bodies were being burned and now they have no more resources to burn these bodies or graveyards were filling up uh the religious part in general it's it's very important to understand about religion in india i mean every country has um you know a lot of countries around the world doesn't matter who you are have deep ties to religion but uh there were a lot of religious uh you know gatherings everywhere from uh, you know, people meeting at gurdwaras or masjids. And, but especially what really set it off and what really made the headlines and was this uh, huge religious festival that happened uh, called Kumela, which is a very, um, uh, a religious gathering in Hinduism. And, you know, people were gathering at the river completely maskless and were, um, you know, gathering in huge uh, crowds. And, you know, you can't be doing this during a pandemic. Like, um, and where was the government in stopping this? Um, of course, you know, the carelessness of the people is one thing, but the government also has to step up and say, hey, like, you can't do this. Like, <laughs> you you know, it's, it seems mean at the time because it is a religious um, pilgrimage and a religious gathering, but it is for the sake of the greater, you know, greater good, because look where we are now, all these religious gatherings led to massive debts, you know, it, it's, it's a horrible sight to see. And it's, it might be hard pill to swallow for some religious people out there, but you, you can't, you can't be doing this when people are dying and are going to continue to die. And now India's stuck in a crisis and it's really sad to see. My understanding is that the government even encouraged that uh, pilgrimage, right? And uh, before the recent spike in cases, they hosted the the BJP had a fairly large political rally. 
Yeah, exactly. Uh, the government was not stopping any of these gatherings, whether it was religious and these election rallies, uh, a lot were, there was huge, there was important elections for Modi happening in West Bengal and Assam. And they were just allowing all these gatherings to happen, these election rallies to happen, huge election rallies. And, you know, and when I mean huge, I mean, people are packed tight to come see Modi who has a cult of personality around him. And they're there to see him. And you see these pictures of people maskless again. <laughs> um, and now the COVID cases are all the way up. And, you know, and now we're in the situation we are in now. Um, are there any final thoughts we have about the current situation in India or what led to it? Uh, before we discuss what the response should be. Um, I mean, yeah, basically what I, to sum it up is that these hospitals, this healthcare infrastructure, uh, it's on the brink of collapse. Some people could argue that it is already collapsed and there's, uh, you know, a lack of resources, uh, you know, oxygen was a really precious item that wasn't being, um, distributed properly. And this is the crisis we are seeing right now. Uh, you know, a lot of these things, they hit the news reel and they go away, but people in India are still suffering out there. And uh, there definitely needs to be, uh, uh, there needs to be, there should have been a better response to this situation. And it, in some way it could have been avoided, I believe. Absolutely. So now let's discuss what the response to uh, the spike is. It, as we noted, it is starting to decrease in terms of the total new cases. There's still uh, 137,000 cases a day, which is the official total. Uh, it should be noted that experts uh, think that the the death count, as well as the uh, case count, could be as much as five to ten times the official numbers, uh, just because of undercounting. So there's a couple uh, important things that go into this, right? You have medicines and treatments. You need uh, remdesivir, uh, the Gilead-developed um, uh, treatment for COVID-19, the, the five-day dose. You have dexamethasone, which is a relatively available uh, treatment for COVID-19, as well as monoclonal antibodies, which have been used uh, a little bit in the U.S. Uh, in the early stage of COVID-19 infection, if you can uh, diagnose it early, as well as oxygen has been a significant concern and vaccine distribution. So what's the status in India right now? Uh, as far as it goes right now, I think that the government has has made uh, has put in orders for the vaccines to go um, I do believe that they uh, limited the uh, limited or outright banned the export of vaccines um, so that it could be used more domestically. That was a major issue was that these vaccines, even though India is the largest producer of vaccines, wasn't going to Indians themselves. And that was a big, um, you know, he got a, Modi got a lot of scrutiny for that. Uh, on top of that, uh, 
a lot of when in the, when the real case was going on, there was a lot of international aid coming to India, uh, UK, uh, USA. They had been sending ventilators and oxygen concentrators, and they and there was a lot of pressure for USA to lift its ban on sending materials abroad. What a lot of people don't know was that US, after they had done their Defense Production Act, which was invoked by Trump and you know continued by Biden, was that we weren't supposed to be sending out materials to other countries. Um, so there was a lot of pressure on Biden to lift that. And a big thing in a big issue that is something that is still ongoing. And, you know, there has been a lot of pressure on these was these actual ph pharmaceutical companies to, to um, get a waiver on a lot of these trade related aspects of intellectual property rights, because this technology to stop COVID, um, it's because of these intellectual property rights, you know, a lot of these countries haven't been able to uh, use certain technology to stop the COVID crisis. So as far as I know, that's like a major thing uh, that's happening right now. Uh, these are a lot of the conversations happening. Yeah, so India is using three uh, vaccines currently. Uh, Shield, uh, developed by the Serum Institute of India, uh, Covaxin, developed by an Indian bio, uh, biotechnology company, and Sputnik V, the uh, Gamalaya Institute uh, in Moscow's uh, vaccine. Uh, they are not using currently, uh, or not using in any large amount uh, anyway. Uh, Pfizer uh, or Moderna or Johnson & Johnson, the, the three vaccines used in the United States. Uh, yesterday, India purchased 300 million doses of a new vaccine called uh, Biological E. Uh, they'll be rolling out in the next couple months. But vaccine distribution in a country the size of India, India has 1.4 billion people. Uh, and yet they, they were doing 4 million doses a day in April, on April 1st, actually. But due to issues with rollout and uh, vaccine hesitancy, that number had dropped to 450,000 on May 1st. Uh, yeah, no, this is exactly right. I had, um, I had read an article and in it, a doctor from New Delhi had said, he said, even if the projected supply was available, the projected supply that they need, India has opened the vaccination to a far bigger population than probably can, than uh, probably any setting can expect the vaccines to cover. Um, so there's just so many people in India and they had opened it up so far and they didn't have the projected supply that they needed. So this vaccine distribution was very badly done. Uh, we had kind of seen a problem with that in, um, for a little bit for a meantime in USA with the vaccine distribution. And now India is kind of, you know, going through the same thing. Uh, there's clearly a long way to get that kind of supply uh, needed to vaccinate a lot of people. I mean, and you want to go back to uh, vaccine apartheid and have that conversation. Um, US, I mean, the the percentage of people vaccinated in India versus vaccinated in UK or USA, you're talking about around 2% in India, 
that's the latest number I saw. It could be higher now. 2% in India to like 50% in US or UK. And these are things that are, um, again, this, this, this inequity, world inequity happening in the world uh, is very, very stark and it needs to be addressed you know you can't have a safe world if only your country is you know vaccinated how you know every uh, we learn all the time in international studies everything's connected so you got to help everybody eventually so i'm pulling up the our world and data and saying that india has 3.2 percent of their population fully vaccinated the u.s is 41.6 percent uk is 40.2 percent that sounds right. So it almost sounds like India, based on those numbers, might hit a sort of a natural herd immunity number and start seeing cases drop because of that rather than achieving herd immunity through a vaccination, which, of course, that method or that route will lead to many more deaths um, unless they can get vaccines, more vaccines and have a higher um rate of vaccinations and that vaccine hesitancy goes down because i mean even just in the u.s and the uk you know you see about 50 ish percent or so um like you had said those number the vaccine the covid sorry those covid numbers are already going down even just with that uh, percentage so if if somehow we could get india higher then maybe those deaths would also drop as some herd immunity takes in some sort of uh route and uh, it takes a hold well let me tell you as someone who works in uh, COVID-19 testing and mitigation the prospect of having your country achieve herd immunity through uh, caseload is not something that you really want to consider that would be yeah that's one, not a good one, way to go one would hope that it is done through uh, vaccination the COVAX initiative is uh, moving forward. Uh, Japan recently hosted an international summit with uh, Gavi, uh, the company working with the United Nations, uh, and got $2.4 billion more of pledges, uh, making the new global total $9.6 billion. Uh, yesterday, the United States announced that we would be uh, exporting some vaccines uh, we're releasing a tranche of $25 million, uh, 25 million doses uh, now, 19 million of which are going to COVAX, and the other 6 million are going to U.S. allies. And from here on out, 75% of doses will go to COVAX, uh, with the rest to allies and countries that need it, uh, with a goal to have 80 million doses distributed by the end of uh, June, uh, including our supply of 60 million AstraZeneca doses that are not approved in the U.S., it sounds it sounds great, but those numbers are kind of still abysmal because um, most of those are what two two doses a piece, right? So eighty million doses. It's forty million people. Even if they all went to India, that's barely a drop in the water for a, a country of over a billion. Um, so, like you said, uh, Rishi, I would think that you'd have to we'd have to increase the distribution from wealthier countries of these vaccines in order to have any impact. Otherwise, you know, 6 million doses to allies or whoever is, you know, it's good PR, but it doesn't actually do anything in, at the, in the end, really. 
Yeah, exactly. The COVAX, the COVAX is a great idea. You know, you need to make sure that this, these vaccines hit, you know, a lot of these more less developing countries. But honestly, it has not been as well funded by rich countries as you would hope so. And that's been a big problem. The World Health Organization has addressed that. And uh, I think a lot of these wealthier countries need to, it, of course, you have to help your, you know, your people. I 100% agree with that. But, you know, you got to, again, you got to help the whole world or else, you know, things won't turn out well. And I hope that COVAX eventually will get the funding in or, you know, it will, you know, according to the Wealth Organization, Health Organization, it's, quote, its aim is to accelerate the development and manufacture COVID-19 vaccines and to guarantee fair and equitable access for every country in the world, like, end quote. And that's exactly what needs to happen. We have to make sure that these COVID-19 vaccines go to every single part of the world because, you know, no, one, no one's life is less. And we have to hope that every country will eventually hit that uh, vaccine uh, forward immunity. And here's to hoping that we can get that vaccine rollout as quickly as possible, including the global south. Uh, a significant portion of the uh, Japanese summit was working on uh, unclogging those those pipes of global distribution and production. The components, the, the U.S. is not the only country in the world that is export controlled the components to vaccine production and when you have the elements of production and distribution locked uh, amongst uh, you know bureaucratic red tape export control uh, domestic protection you are not treating the whole in the most efficient way possible so there was uh, pledges to get resources to where they need to be um, at that most recent summit and the U.S. has said that we will uh, allow, for example, the three new, uh, the, the three uh, types of vaccine that are not approved in the U.S., that's the Sanofi, AstraZeneca, Novavax vaccines to be uh, exported uh, previously because they weren't approved for uh, use in the U.S., they weren't approved for export either. So as you're freeing up that pipeline distribution, you can ameliorate the situation somewhat. But as a matter of policy, the U.S. will almost certainly be maintaining the capacity to uh, give out a third booster dose to people who have already gotten their double dose before people in the global south are even getting their, their first vaccination jab. And I don't see that as likely to change. Uh, I also wanted to mention how um, a lot of these, uh, like the world richest countries, um, they had been making these deals with these pharmaceutical companies way before even the pandemic had, you know, like, like even before the pandemic or during like the height of pandemic, they, they had been making these contracts with these, um, uh, these rich countries and they, there's a lot of argument against, there's a lot of heat against them for hoarding a lot of these vaccines. And uh, that is something that also needs to be addressed, this hoarding of vaccines, and it needs to be equitably distributed across the world. So like on top of all of that, uh, you know, rich countries have the money to, 
buy all buy out all the vaccines and now they're just keeping it so now it needs to be distributed properly so that's just something that should be put out there and should also be addressed yeah i think with that is it's a real it's it's really easy to do that kind of uh, thing for a rich country to do which we have the money we can buy it we'll be safe and then just leave everyone else to their own devices. Um, it definitely, the pandemic has definitely showed the world is, while we like to think of the world as somewhat united, it's definitely still a every man for himself kind of place, at least in the, in my opinion, in the international realm is that many countries really in it for themselves. Um, countries will be friendly with their allies, but otherwise, you know, millions dying in India or Brazil or wherever else is nothing compared to um, millions dying in your, in your own country um, is, is the political view. And, you know, there is some truth to that, but it, like you said, we have the capacity now to fix it or at least ameliorate, ameliorate the situation. So we should probably, like you said, we, I think we can start doing something more and start helping out now that the countries have done their duty to their own populations. Um, but if or when they'll do that, I, it's hard to say because we never know if the, some new variant pops up and is now a problem and the, the pandemic continues. Uh, it's hard to predict the future, I think, on that. Yeah, there's a lot of uncertainty around this COVID crisis and you know, but like, regardless, I feel like the, like the last statistic I saw was that rich countries with 14% of the world's population, they have secured about 53% of the best vaccines. And, you know, that's, that's a start, that's a start, that's a huge, that's a large amount of vaccine, but I 100% agree, like, you know, each country has to look out for its own, but again, you know, um, we're an international coalition. We're all on this earth, and a pandemic uh-huh. does not discriminate. So, but yeah, good points. As the national security advisor, uh, Jake Sullivan noted, the U.S. has, at this point, a stable federal supply of vaccines, and is now able to begin that uh, exporting distribution both to COVAX and to uh, hard hit areas as well as U.S. allies. And here's to hoping that both us and the rest of the world gets cracking as soon as possible. Because like you noted, Cole, it doesn't look at the moment as if there's any uh, variant of the disease that is particularly resistant to vaccines. But if that type of variant were to develop it's a very scary thought. Yeah, it is. Uh, it is a scary thought. Uh, again, throughout this whole entire pandemic, we all went through it. It's it's been very unpredictable, and it's been a it's been a roller coaster, you could say. Yeah, that, that's very true. Understatement of the of the <laughs> year, right there. Well. Here's to hoping that there are no more surprise drops on the roller coaster and we can get to the end of the station as quickly as possible. Uh, To our listeners, uh, thank you for being with us again. 
And I think this has been a good episode. Yeah, I really enjoyed talking to both of you. Uh, we'll, we'll see what happens. This uh, uh, The COVID crisis in India is really bad. And, you know, a lot of other South Asian countries are starting to also feel the brunt of it. So I hope that everybody, again, I talked about in my article, I hope everybody, corporations, most of companies, countries, governments, people, leaders, everybody is in this together so that we can uh, we can help we can help everybody you know and i had said earlier no life is less everybody we gotta work to save as many people as we can i agree good to see y'all good to see you guys it was fun talking to y'all all right have a have a good morning good evening good afternoon wherever you are in the world thank you for listening in Stay safe, everyone, and stay healthy.